Welcome to this Uvula Audio presentation of The Boy Fortune Hunters in Alaska by Floyd Akers. Volume 3 Chapter 7 The Major Presently we shot into the opening and passed swiftly up the smooth waters of the inlet. The hills were gradually sloping at first, and we could look into the tangled mass of forest that lay on either hand. But soon the size of the channel became rocky and precipitous, rising higher and higher until we found ourselves in a deep gorge that wound between gigantic overhanging cliffs. The waters of the inlet were still smooth, but it narrowed perceptibly, all the time curving sharply to the right and then to the left in a series of zigzags, so that every few minutes we seemed to be approaching a solid rocky wall, which suddenly disclosed a continuation of the channel to right angles with it allowing us to continue on our course. It was indeed necessary to watch out in such a place as this, for we were passing through the heart of the mountain, and could not tell from one moment to another what lay before us. There was barely room on each side for the sweep of our oars, so that we had to pull straight and carefully. But after a time the deep gloom in which we were engulfed began to lighten, and we were aware that the slope of the mountain was decreasing and we were approaching its further side. On and on we rode, twisting abruptly this way and that, until suddenly as we turned a sharp corner and shot into open shallow water, the adventure culminated in a mighty surprise. We were surrounded by a band of men, big brawny fellows, who stood waist-deep in the water and threw coils of rope around us before we were quite aware of their presence. At the same time, they caught the boat and arrested its progress, jerking the oars from the hands of the rowers and making us fast prisoners. Only Brionia was faster than the men who sought to entrap him. Before the noose could settle over his shoulders, he leapt into the air and dove headlong beneath the water. But the brave attempt to escape was all in vain, for as he rose to the surface, a dozen hands caught him and drew him to shore, where, despite his struggles, he was bound as securely as the rest of us. So unexpected was the attack, and so cleverly were we mastered, that scarcely a word was uttered by our little party, as we stared in astonishment into the rough and bearded faces of our captors. Only Captain Gabe muttered a string of naughty words under his breath. The rest were silent, and Uncle Naboth, bound round and round with ropes so that he could not move, sat in his seat, and looked across at me with one of his quaintest winks, as if he would cheer me up in this unexpected crisis nor had a word been spoken by the men who entrapped us. Wading slowly through the water, they drew our boat to a sandy shore and beached it there, while we looked curiously around upon the scene that was now clearly unfolded to our view. The cliffs had ended abruptly, and the center of the island, flat and broad, lay stretched before us. The waters of the inlet from here became shallow, and a wide beach of strangely bright sands extended for two hundred feet on either side of it. Then came the jungle, thick and seemingly impenetrable, beyond which all was unknown. Straight and without a ripple, the water lay before us a full quarter of a mile, disappearing thence into the forest. On the thick sands of the east shore, where we now were, a number of rude huts had been erected, shaped something like Indian teepees and made of intertwined branches covered with leaves from the forest. These stood in a row near the edge of the jungle so as to take advantage of its shade. But more strange than all of this was the appearance of the men who bound us. 
They were evidently our own countrymen, and from their dress and manners seemed to be miners, but nearly all of them were in rags and tatters as if they had been long away from civilization, and their faces were fierce and brutal, bearing the expression of wild beasts in search of prey. One of them, however, who stood upon the beach, regarding us silently and with folded arms, was a personage so remarkable that he instantly riveted our attention. His height was enormous, at least six feet three inches, and his chest was as broad and deep as that of ancient Hercules. He was bearded like a gorilla with fiery red hair, which extended even to his great chest, disclosed through the open gray flannel shirt. There was no hat upon his head, and he wore no coat, but high boots were upon his feet, and around his waist a leather belt stuck full of knives and revolvers. No stage pirate, no bandit of southern Europe, was ever half so formidable in appearance as this terrible personage. He stood motionless as a pillar of stone, but his little red eyes, quick and shrewd, roved from one of our faces to another, as if he were making a mental estimate of each of us, like the ogre who selected his fattest prisoner to grace his pot pie. I will tell you that I shuddered as his glance fell upon me, and we were all more or less disquieted by our rough seizure and the uncertainty of the fate that awaited us. This man, this red giant, was undoubtedly the leader of the outlaw band, for having pulled our boat upon the beach and dragged Bryonia to a position beside it, all eyes were turned inquiringly upon him. He strode forward a few steps, fixed his eyes firmly upon Uncle Naboth, and said, Did you leave anybody aboard the ship? I gave a start of surprise. The voice of the huge bandit was as gentle and soft as that of a woman. No, said my uncle. I guess, Major, we've got them all now, remarked one of the men. The giant nodded and turned again to Uncle Naboth. You must pardon us, sir, for our seeming rudeness, he said with a politeness that seemed absolutely incongruous coming from his coarse, hairy lips. My men and I are in desperate straits, and only desperate remedies will avail to save us. I beg you all to believe that we have no personal enmity toward you whatsoever. Then he turned to his men and with a wave of his hand added, Bring him along. Thereat we were jerked from our seats in the boat and led away over the sands toward the edge of the jungle. I noticed that our arms and provisions, being confiscated, were carried into one of the huts, but we ourselves were dragged past these and through an opening in the trees just large enough to admit a single file. A few steps from the edge we entered a circular clearing, perhaps a dozen paces in diameter, hemmed in on all sides by a perfect network of tangled brushwood and vines. Here, to our great joy, we came upon our lost comrades, all seated at the base of slender trees, to which they were bound by stout ropes. Hurrah! cried Bill Acker, a smile lighting his careworn face. It's a joy to see you again, my boys, although you seem to have fallen into the same trap we did. Beg your pardon, Captain, for getting myself caught, said Ned Britton quite seriously. The brutes jumped me so quick, I didn't have time to fire a shot. It's all right, Ned. You're not to blame, said Captain Gay. And while we were interchanging greetings, our captors were busily engaged in securing us to trees in the same manner the others were bound. We protested very naturally at such treatment, but the men, surly and rough, answered us not a word, 
and after making sure we could not get away, they withdrew and left us alone. As the trees to which we were fastened were at the edge of the clearing, we were seated in a sort of a circle, facing one another. Well, boys, said Uncle Naboth, here's a pretty kettle of fish, I must say. The whole crew of the flipper, officers and men and supercargo, has been caught like so many turtles and turned on their backs, and all we can do is kick and wish we had legs again. We all seemed rather ashamed of ourselves. Captain Gay heaved a most dismal sigh and turned to Bill Acker asked, Who are these people, Bill? I cannot say I'm sure, Tom. We rode up the inlet not expecting any danger when suddenly the whole lot jumped us and made us prisoners on the wink of an eye. They brought us before a red devil called the Major who pumped us to find out how many men were aboard the ship. When we refused to give them any information, they brought us to this place, and here we've been ever since fast bound and half starved, for I guess the fellows haven't much to eat themselves. How did they come here? asked my uncle. Really, sir, they haven't told us one word about themselves, replied Acker. For my part, said Ned Britton, speaking in his deliberate manner, I think these pirates have been spying on us ever since we anchored in the bay. They must have a path over the mountains we don't know about, for when the mate come up the inlet in the gig, they was ready and waiting for him, and he didn't have a chance to resist. It was the same with me, sir. I crept along the edge of the channel, going slow and swinging myself from tree to tree over the gulch, for the trees was too thick to get between them, until I come to this here place, where two men grabbed me and knocked me down and tied me up like a pig sent to market. The major were with him. He swore he'd murder me if I didn't tell him how many more were aboard the ship, and what a cargo was, and where we were bound for, and a dozen other things. I kept mumps, sir, as was my duty. And finally they brung me to this place, where I was mighty glad to find the mate and his men safe and sound. We then related our own anxiety over the fate of those who had so mysteriously disappeared, and our final expedition in search of them. Well, we found you all right, said Uncle Naboth in conclusion. But now the question is, what's going to become of us? And what shall we do to escape from these blamed pirates that's captured us? Before you answer that question, said a quiet voice, it may be as well for you to listen to what I have to say. We looked up and saw the great form of the Major standing in the clearing. How much of our conversation he had overheard we didn't know. But after a lowering glance into our startled faces, he calmly seated himself in the midst of the circle. Thirteen all told! You seem kind of short-handed for so big a schooner. We lost three men in the storm, said Uncle Naboth. What are you, the owner? asked the Major. Part owner. What's your cargo? Mixed, replied Uncle Naboth noncommittally. The Major reflected a moment. We shall soon find out all we wish to know. We've got both your boats. We can examine the ship for ourselves, he said. I suppose you know this is a hanging matter, suggested my uncle. It may be, at any rate, was the calm reply. It is illegal, and I regret that circumstances force us to act illegally with you. As a matter of fact, I wish I might have treated you with more courtesy, but you got no business to come to this island, and having come here and surprised our great secret by penetrating into the centre of the land, you must take the consequences of your folly. We didn't want you here, 
and we kept out of your way as long as you would let us. When you invaded our private domain, we were forced to protect ourselves. I don't understand, said my uncle, much puzzled by this speech. We're no robbers nor pirates. We're peaceful citizens of the United States. So are we, but we're also creatures of fate, and our condition here forces us to wage warfare upon any who intrude into our privacy. We put in here for repairs, and it was natural we should want to explore the island, returned my uncle doggedly. The major appeared lost in thought. For several minutes he sat staring at the ground, with a great frown wrinkling his brow. For our part, we watched him curiously, wondering the while what would be the outcome of the queer condition in which we found ourselves. Finally the man spoke. Under the circumstances, there are but two courses open to us. One is to murder every man of you, and bury you underneath the sands. I imagined you'd be safe there, and not a soul on earth would ever know what had become of you. I shuddered. The soft tones could not disguise the horror of the words. The alternative, continued the Major, is to swear you to secrecy, to induce you to work for us for fair wages, and finally to sail back with you and your ship to San Francisco, where we may part good friends. The contrast between these propositions was so great that we stared at the man in amazement. If we are to take our choice, said Uncle Naboth, it won't be the grave under the sands, you may be sure of that. The choice does not lie with you, but with my men, returned the Major coolly. For my part, I'm neither bloodthirsty nor inclined to become a murderer, so I shall use my influence in your behalf. With this he rose slowly to his feet and stalked from the clearing, leaving us to reflections that were not entirely comfortable. The hours passed drearily enough. Toward evening, some of the men brought us a few moldy ship's biscuits and a bucket of sweet drinking water, and after partaking of this, we were left to ourselves until the next daybreak. As it grew dusk, Nux suddenly rose from his seat, and we saw that he was free. In some way, he had managed to slip his bonds, and he passed quickly from one of us to another until we were all released from the dreadful ropes that had been chafing us. Then a council of war was held. Our captors numbered about thirty, and all were fully armed. To attempt to oppose them openly would be madness. But if we could manage to slip away and regain our boats, we should be able to reach our ship and escape. Bryonia agreed to spy out our surroundings and see where the boats lay, so we fell upon all fours and silently crept from the clearing. We awaited his return with impatience, but he was not gone long. He re-entered the clearing, walking upright and indifferent to crackling twigs, and then we knew our case was hopeless. There's men sleeping in the boats, and men on watch, and they all have swords and pistols, he said. Can't get away anyhow, Master Perkins. How about the woods? asked my uncle. Can't we escape through them? Bry shook his head decisively. He was an expert woodsman, and and declared no man could penetrate the thick jungle that hemmed us in. Ned Britton also bore testimony to this fact. So we were obliged to sadly abandon any hope of escape, and stretched ourselves as comfortably as we might upon the ground to await the approach of morning. With the first streaks of day, the Major and a dozen of his men arrived, and without appearing to notice that we had slipped our bonds, they drove us in a pack from the clearing and out upon the sands that bordered the inlet. 
Here we saw others of our captors busy preparing breakfast before the entrances to the rude huts, and it was evident that they were using the provisions they had captured from us, for I scented the aroma of the coffee that Uncle Naboth was so proud of and carried with him wherever he went. We gathered before the hut of the Major, which was somewhat larger than the others, and then the leader, in a tone of stern command, said, Take off your clothes. We hesitated, not quite understanding the purpose of the order. Strip, my boys, said another of the pirates with a grin. We want your togs. We drew cuts for them last night, and now we'll trade our rags for yours. So we stripped and tossed our clothes upon the ground where they were eagerly seized by the outlaws and donned with great satisfaction. The major did not participate in this robbery, but indeed no garment that we wore could possibly have fit his huge frame. When we had put on the rags discarded by the others, we were a curious-looking lot, to be sure. Uncle Naboth had a fit of silent merriment at my expense, but if he could have seen himself, I'm sure he would have choked and sputtered dangerously. A more disreputable appearance than that we now presented would be hard to imagine. But our enemies did not profit so greatly by the exchange, after all, for the garments fit them as badly as theirs did us. However, they seemed very proud of their acquisitions, and strutted around like so many vain peacocks. Chapter 8 The Sands of Gold The sun had now risen and flooded the scene with its glorious rays. We were given some of the coffee and a scant allowance of food for our breakfast, the care with which the latter was doled out being evidence that our captors did not know that the flipper was loaded down with provisions. As soon as the meal was concluded, we all gathered around the Major's hut again, and he began to make us an address. At the conference held last evening, he began in his smooth tone, we decided to allow you to choose your own fate. It is death on the one hand, and life as our paid employees on the other. What do you say? We'd like to know, sir, asked Uncle Naboth. What are you doing on this island? We're washing gold. Gold. To be sure, said the Major. Are you so ignorant you can't see that these sands upon which you're standing are wonderfully rich in gold? Why, I hadn't noticed, said my uncle. And then we all curiously stared at the bright billows of sand that filled the beach on both sides of the inlet. It will do no harm to explain to you how we came here and what we're doing, said the Major. It will help you to make your decision. Seems like a queer place to look for gold, said Uncle Naboth reflectively. But even then, I can't see why you've treated us like you have, or why you're so blamed secret about the thing. Can't you, was the reply. Then I must jog your reason with a few sensible suggestions. Every gold field yet discovered has been a magnet to draw men from every part of the civilized world. The result has been that the first discoverers seldom profit to any extent, while the horde they draw around them get the lion's share. That has been our experience time and time again, for every member of our band is an experienced miner. We've been crowded from Colorado to Idaho, from Idaho to California, from California to the Black Hills and back again. Finally, we got word of a rich find of gold in Alaska. So, banding together, we chartered an old ship and started for the Yukon. On the way, we encountered a gale that blew us to this island. We don't know what island it is. We don't care. 
while our vessel was undergoing repairs. We rolled up the inlet as you did, discovered these sands, which are marvellously rich with grains of pure gold. Before your eyes, gentlemen, lies the greatest natural accumulation of gold the world has ever known. He paused after this impressive statement, and again we looked around wonderingly. We can't get it all, that's true, resumed the Major, but we have decided to stay here and defend our secret until each one of us has secured an independent fortune. Then the swarms of gold hunters can settle here as thickly as they please. Of course we had our tools with us and a good supply of provisions, so we were glad to let Alaska take care of itself and go to work washing out the wealth that lay at our feet. We knew the food wouldn't last till we were ready to leave here, so we decided to send the ship home for more provisions. The captain was bound to secrecy by promise of a big share for himself, but soon after he sailed away, a great storm arose, and probably the old leaky craft never weathered it, for that was over a year ago, and no ship has reached this harbour until yours appeared. We listened to this recital with eager interest, for it explained much that had puzzled us. And Uncle Naboth remarked, It's a strange story, sir, but I don't see why you treated us as enemies when we came here. Suppose you'd been prospectors like ourselves. What would become of our little secret then? But we're not, was the reply. It was even possible our captain might have reached shore and betrayed us. In that case, you might be the forerunners of an army of invaders. We couldn't take the chances, sir. We've been disappointed too many times. It appears that you were merely the victim of the elements, and like ourselves were driven to the shore in a gale. So the only danger to be feared from you is your getting away before we're ready to go with you. That's why we hesitated between murdering you and using your services to enable us to accomplish our task sooner than we would otherwise. We're not cutthroats, believe me, nor do we care to be responsible for the death of so many decent men. But the lust for gold has made my fellows desperate, and with immense fortunes within their grasp, they will stick to nothing to protect themselves and their treasure. That's only natural, growled Uncle Naboth. I'm glad to find you so reasonable, said the Major. Having discovered this field ourselves, we do not intend to share the gold with anyone, but we will make you a reasonable proposition. We will pay you each two dollars a day in grains of gold for your labor, and you must buckle in and help us to get out the gold. We will also pay you in gold for whatever provisions you have on your ship or other supplies we may need. And when we have enough to satisfy ourselves and are ready to sail back to civilization, we'll pay you a reasonable price for passage in your ship. That seems to me to be fair and square. What do you say? Why, that's all we could look for if we got to Alaska, answered Uncle Naboth with a gasp. We're traitors, sir, and expect to make our money in trade. The only thing we object to is working like dogs to wash gold for somebody else. You'll have to put up with that objection, returned the man dryly. Your labor will shorten our stay here by a full year, and it's the penalty you must suffer for being in our power. My uncle turned to his crew. What do you say, boys? he asked. Some grumbled and all looked grave, but a glance at the lowering faces of the miners assured them that discretion was the better part of valor, so they yielded a reluctant consent to the arrangement. There is one point, however, I would like to argify, said Uncle Naboth. This here lad's too small and delicate to work at the washing, and somebody's got to give out the provisions and collect the pay for him. Let him out of the deal, sir, and make him a clerk of supplies. 
I'll agree to that, said the Major promptly. When we get back to the States, we don't want to have anything against our record, so this bargain shall be kept faithfully on our side. I'll prepare a paper, which every man must sign, stating that you accept the agreement freely and without compulsion, and will be satisfied with your wages and the payment for your groceries and supplies. Also, you must each one take an oath not to betray to anyone the whereabouts of this island after you leave, for it will be a valuable possession to us, even after we've taken enough gold from it to make us rich. Meantime, you'll be well treated and carefully watched. To some extent, you'll be morally our prisoners, but the only hardship you'll suffer is to labor hard for a few months at a small salary. That's agreeable, sir, said my uncle, and the men accepted the arrangement with more or less grace. Then the conference broke up. Our sailors, as well as Captain Gay, the mate and my uncle, were at once set to work washing gold on the banks of the inlet, their numbers being distributed among the miners, who showed them what to do and supervised the work. It appeared that all the gold gathered by our people was to go into a common pot, to be distributed equally among our captors. But each miner worked for himself alone and was entitled to whatever he secured. In this way, a premium was set upon individual industry, and they worked eagerly and persistently, at the same time insisting that the flipper's crew did not loiter. The major, whose influence over his rough comrades was undoubted, retired within his tent to draft the paper we were to sign, and I was left to my own devices. I wandered here and there watching the men and wondering what would be the outcome of this singular adventure. At noon the paper was ready, and it set forth clearly and fairly the terms of the agreement. We were all required to sign it, as well as every miner in the camp, and then the major took possession of it, since there was no duplicate. After the midday meal, six of our sailors were selected to man the longboat, and then accompanied by the major, who was fully armed, and by myself, they rowed down the inlet to the harbor, and we boarded the ship. I selected such of the provisions as were most needed by the half-starved miners, and also carried away a number of blankets, since the nights were chill and the blankets would prevent much suffering. Two trips we made that afternoon, and when the miners stopped work for the day, I had quite a heap of groceries piled upon the sands. Instantly they surrounded me, clamoring for supplies, which I served to each man as he demanded them. They paid me in grains of pure gold, which they drew from the sacks, old stockings tied from a string, and even pockets cut from their clothing. How much to demand I didn't know, and some paid me too much, I suppose, and some too little. One of them, a low-browed, black-bearded fellow called Larkin, obtained a quantity of goods, and then said he would pay me some other time. But the major insisted that I be paid then and there. So the man laid down a pinch of gold, saying it was enough. I was about to accept it when the major drew his revolver and said quietly, This is a fair deal, Larkin. Shell out. The fellow uttered a string of angry oaths, but he added to his first offering until his leader was satisfied, and then went away vowing to get even with the robbers. To avoid further trouble, I brought a small pair of scales from the ship the next day. They were not very accurate, I fear, but they were much better than guesswork. The Major and I figured out exactly what weight of gold should stand for a dollar, and I was allowed to put my own price on our supplies, but I took care not to be exorbitant in my demands and most of the men expressed themselves as well satisfied with the arrangement. As a good share of the provisions would suffer by being left out in the night air, 
it was decided to build a warehouse for my use. A regular grocery store, Uncle Naboth described it. So the men all set to work, and under the direction of our ship's carpenter, soon constructed a roomy and comfortable hut for this purpose. By repeated trips to the ship in the longboat, I soon accumulated a good stock of everything our cargo represented, and by taking off the covers of the boxes and then piling them on their edges in rows, I soon made my hut look like a prosperous mercantile establishment. Surplus and unopened boxes were utilized to form a counter in front of my stock, and here I placed my scales and weighed the gold that was offered in payment. The men were as prodigal as all miners and denied themselves nothing so long as they had the gold to pay for it, so my stock gradually increased in gold and diminished in merchandise, and the men were well-fed and comfortable. But the sands upon which we so carelessly trod were wonderfully rich in the precious metal, and any sort of industry was sure to be repaid enormously by the glittering grain scattered about. It was not dust, you understand, but tiny grains resembling those of granulated sugar. The richest yield was derived from the sands at the bottom of the shallow inlet, and the practice of the miners was to wade a little way into the stream, scoop up a basin off the sandy bottom, and wash it until only the specks of sparkling metal remained. As it was difficult to care for this properly, I brought from the ship a quantity of sailcloth, which I made during my leisure moments into stout bags, about the size of salt sacks, sewing the seams firmly. These bags I sold readily to the miners, who, when they filled one, would usually bury it beneath the sand in their hut so that it would be safe. I did not do this with my supply, however, but piled my sacks into an empty box in one corner of my grocery store, feeling sure there would be no theft of them in the confines of our little camp. Neither did the Major secrete his hoard, which lay plainly inside of anyone who entered his hut, and the Major's store of gold was enormous, because he took charge of all that our men washed out, until the time for a final division should arrive. There was no game of any sort on the island, as far as we knew, but the men caught plenty of fish in the upper part of the inlet and in the bay upon the ocean frontage. The thickets surrounding our camp were considered absolutely impenetrable on account of the underbrush and creeping vines that formed such a thick network at the foot of the trees. Yet there was a man named Daggett, who, it was rumored, had found a way to traverse the forest with comparative ease. This Daggett was quite a remarkable person, and now enters into my story. He was a thin, withered little man, about fifty years old, who had been an unsuccessful miner all his life until now. He was so eager at first to take advantage of the great opportunities here afforded to secure a fortune that he would work by moonlight, washing gold, while his companions slept and rested from their labors. But soon he conceived an idea that these golden sands were deposited from some point in the mountains of the interior of the island, where solid gold abounded in enormous quantities. So he quit washing and began a search for the imaginary mountain of gold, cutting a secret path through the thicket to the more open interior and passing day after day in his eager quest. At first he urged some of his comrades to join him, but they only laughed at his idea, being well content to obtain the coveted gold in the easy way, where it lay plainly before their eyes. But Daggett did not desist, spending day after day in roaming through the wild hills in his fruitless search. During the time he lost in this way, his mates were accumulating a vast store of golden grains, 
while Daggett was as yet only in possession of the result of his first eager labors. And after I opened my grocery store, he was obliged to exchange pinches of his small substance for supplies, so that it gradually dwindled away to a mere nothing. He haggled so over the price of every article he secured that his fellows jeered at him unmercifully, calling him the miser, and berating him for neglecting his opportunities. Indeed, the poor fellow was so well-nigh desperate at the last, for he alone of all the camp was still poor, and his only salvation he considered was to find the hills of solid gold before the time came for all to abandon the island. So he was gone for days, returning to camp to secure provisions, and no one knew where he wandered, or seemed to care. Chapter 9. The Outlaws There were many curious characters at the camp, as I suppose there are everywhere that a number of men are gathered together. I used to amuse myself studying the various phases of human nature that came under my observation, with the result that some men attracted me and some repelled me. Aside from the miserly Daggett, the man who caused me the most trouble was the surly, scowling Larkin, whom the Major had threatened to shoot on sight if he did not pay me for everything he obtained at my shop. He was a lazy fellow, and for that reason did not seem to get ahead as fast as his companions. Sometimes in the heat of the afternoon he would strike work and come into my hut where he threatened and bullied me and cast longing glances at the sacks of gold I had accumulated. Uncle Naboth, who, by the way, labored doggedly day after day, as he was commanded, often warned me against Larkin, but I had no fears, being assured that the Major would protect me from the villain's hatred. One or two of the others, Hayes and Judson, for instance, were evidently disreputable characters and affected the society of Larkin when they were not at work. But in the main, the miners were decent enough fellows and seemed to have no thought above securing a fortune from the wealth of the golden sands. They paid me liberally, were just in their dealings, and labored industriously day by day so as to lessen the time of their captivity upon the island. In the evenings, the officers and crew of the flipper were wont to gather in my hut, where they smoked their pipes and conversed more or less gloomily together. None of them, however, was greatly distressed at his fate, and it was wonderful how cheerful Uncle Naboth remained through it all. His silent merriment and sly winks were by no means lacking in these days of tribulations and hard work, and he found many opportunities to exercise his keen sense of humor. In one way, his fortunes were really prospering, and each evening he weighed out the day's receipts in golden grains and calculated the profits to us on the sales. I suppose these must have been satisfactory, for he never complained. I always slept in my hut, surrounded by the store of merchandise and my sacks of gold. But the rest of the crew of the ship had huts of their own. Nux and Bryonia occupied one together. One night, after I had been asleep for some hours, I was suddenly awakened by the muzzle of a pistol pressed close to my forehead. I opened my eyes and saw Larkin standing beside me. A tallow candle had been lit in the hut, and I could see his evil features distinctly. Now, my lad, he said, keep quiet and you won't get hurt. But if you raise any rumpus or make a sound, I'll blow your brains out. So I lay quiet, but I kept my eyes opened and eagerly watched what was taking place in the room. Besides Larkin, there were present Daggett, Judson, and Hayes, the worst characters in the camp. While Larkin remained beside me to threaten me with his pistol, the others spread out a blanket and dumped into it every sack of gold I possessed. 
This I secured by tying the corners of the blanket together. Next, they spread another blanket and threw into it a quantity of canned meats and other provisions, afterwards tying them up as they had the gold. Then Hayes took the pistol and stood guard over me while the others crept from the hut. They were back in a few minutes, however, bearing another blanket heavily loaded. And now Larkin resumed his place beside me, and the others caught up the three parcels and after extinguishing the candle, slipped out the doorway. There was a moon outside, I knew, but it was quite dark in the hut, and the consciousness of being at the mercy of the scoundrel beside me sent cold shivers creeping up my spine. After waiting a few moments in silence, Larkin finally spoke. Look here, Sam, he said gruffly, but in a low voice. We took some gold and other stuff, as you know, but we ain't gonna do murder unless we has to. If you got sense enough to keep still for a solid hour and make no fuss, you'll live to get as much gold or more as we've just grabbed. But if you try to raise the camp or follow us, I'll kill you before you know it. Now I'm going to stand outside the door for a solid hour. You lay still and count 60 seconds to a minute and 60 minutes to an hour. If you move before that, you're a dead man. After the hour, you can howl all you please and the louder the better. I ought to stick a knife in you now, but I guess I'll wait outside the door and see if you mind what I tell you. Then, with a threatening flourish of his pistol, he slunk away, and as soon as he was outside the door, I rose and followed. I knew he was lying well enough, and that his threats were merely meant to terrify me into keeping silent until he escaped. He considered me a mere boy, and believed I'd be too frightened to cause him any trouble. But where could he and his fellow thieves go? How could they penetrate the wild thicket? That was the question that puzzled me. And then I remember that Daggett was with them, who was reputed to be able to travel at will throughout the interior of the island. When I reached the door and looked around, I could see no signs at first of the man who had just left me. Then I discovered a dark form creeping along the edge of the jungle, and at once I sprang into the shade myself and crept after him. He was going slowly, and in my eagerness, I closed up most of the distance between us until I was dangerously near. But he did not look around, and while my eyes were fastened upon him, he dropped to his knees and pushed aside a thick bush and disappeared into the thicket. That was all the information I needed, so I hastily marked the place by heaping a mound of sand before the bush and then ran back to my hut as fast as I could go. I was terribly humiliated at being robbed so coolly of the gold that had been placed in my care and rashly resolved I would recover it by my own efforts, without disturbing the slumbers of my uncle or the major. So entering the hut, I secured three revolvers of the Colt type and several boxes of cartridges for them, all of which I had secretly smuggled from the ship and hidden among the groceries, for the major had forbidden any of our crew having firearms. I had thought that an emergency might arise sometime when these revolvers would be useful to us. Now I blessed my foresight in secreting them, Having secured the weapons, I ran quickly to the hut of Nux and Bryonia and cautiously awakened them. At my first touch, Bry sprang into the air and alit on his feet. What is the matter, Master Sam? he demanded. I've been robbed, Bry. Robbed, echoed Nux, who was now beside us. Yes, Larkin and his gang have taken every bag of our dust. Through the dim light, I could see their white eyeballs glaring at me in amazement. 
What are you going to do, Master Sam? I'm going to give chase and make the rascals give it back. That is, if you will be my friends and stand by me. By daybreak, every bag must be in my hut again. Sure enough, murmured Knox. We are ready, Master Sam, announced Bry quickly. Then take these revolvers and follow me. I gave a weapon to each of them, having hastily loaded them, and then I turned away, followed by the dark forms of the two Sulus. They're thieves, you know, burglars and outlaws, so if we have to shoot them down, nobody can blame us. They made no answer at this remark. And soon we had left the camp behind and reached the bush underneath which Larkin had disappeared. In a low voice I related what I had seen, and Bryonia, who was a master of woodcraft, at once dropped to his knees and vanished into the thicket. I followed close after him, and Nux brought up the rear. After creeping a few paces through the underbrush, Bry grasped my arm and raised me to my feet and discovered that we were now in a well-defined but narrow path which allowed us to stand upright. It was dark as pitch in the grim forest, and we could feel our way along, but it was not possible for us to get off the path, which had doubtless been cut by Daggett to afford his entrance into the interior of the island. And if our progress was slow, those whom we pursued could not proceed at a much greater speed than ourselves. So we crept along, stumbling over roots and tearing our clothes by brushing against the briars on either side for a period of nearly an hour. Bryonia glided before us as stealthily as a panther, and often I was not certain but that he had left us far behind. But Nux made as much noise as I did, and puffed much harder to get his breath, so I did not fear being abandoned in the black wilderness. The ground seemed to rise gradually as we penetrated into the wild interior, but the path remained as narrow as at first. Now that my first excitement and indignation had cooled, this midnight pursuit began to look doubtful of getting a result. The robbers knew the way much better than we did, and they were so far ahead of us that we heard no sound of any sort to guide us. More than once I was tempted to abandon the chase, for my folly in undertaking it grew more and more evident, but my two companions had no thought of turning back, and I was ashamed to call a halt. Suddenly I ran plump into Bryonia, who grasped my arm as firmly as if it were in a vice, and held me rigid. Nux immediately ran into me, but stopped short at the moment of contact. "'What is it, Bry?' I asked in a whisper. "'Look,' he answered, and swung me around in front of him. Then, as I peered into the darkness, a faint ray of light became visible. In a moment I perceived that it was growing bigger and brighter, and then I knew what it meant. "'They've gone into camp and lit a fire,' I said, pleased to have overtaken them. "'They don't know we're coming.' chuckled Nux from behind. But Bry stood like a statue holding fast to my shoulders and peering over my head at the enemy. We could now see that the forest was much thinner here than at the point we had entered, and just beyond in a little hollow where Larkin and his men were encamped, the trees grew quite scattered. Our best plan, I said after a moment's thought, will be to creep upon them and make a sudden attack. One, two, three... Four, counted Brian. No use attacking, Master Sam. They have got guns, and they will kill us all quick. We have revolvers, I suggested, rather disappointed at his prediction. Nux and I might hit something, and we might not. If we hit something, it might be a man, and it might not. 
said Bry. This was discouraging, and it called to mind the fact that I was not much used to firearms myself. Still, I don't mean to go back without doing something to recover our gold, I said. Wait, whispered the black, and swung me around back of him again. How he managed to do this, I don't know, for the path was very narrow. The next moment he disappeared as if the earth had swallowed him. Nux gave a laugh and sat down on the ground. After a few moments, I followed suit, squatting in the place I had been standing, for even from that distance I could see by the flickering firelight the dim forms of the robbers gathered around it. And now I perceived that Bry's decision was wise. We were too far from camp to expect assistance in case of emergency, even if our friends succeeded in finding the entrance to the jungle that was so cleverly concealed under the bush. So whatever was to be done must be done by ourselves, a boy and two black men against four desperate and well-armed villains who would stop at no crime to retain the gold they had stolen. Evidently, they did not fear pursuit now, for we could hear the murmur of their voices as they laughed and shouted at one another. We waited in silence for a long time, and as the gloom of the silent forest became intensified by the distant light, I began to feel for the first time a thrill that was akin to fear. Finally, I noticed a black body wriggling its way toward us through the brush like some huge snake, and a moment later, Bryonia stood before me. I creep close and hear what they say, Master Sam, he reported. They're going to watch all night. I watch too. Tomorrow maybe we catch them. You and Nux go to sleep. I protested at once that I was not at all sleepy, but Bride led us away from the path to a quiet place where he found a bank of moss, and here he cautioned us to remain quietly. He himself crept once again toward the campfire, and a moment later was wholly invisible. Nux whispered to me tales of Bryonia's skill as a woodsman, wherein it seemed he had excelled in his native land. But they grew monotonous in time, and before I knew it, I had fallen fast asleep on the mossy bank. <laughs>